It got to a point where Reznikov had to go. Umerov got a call from Zelensky. He's like, hey, you know, I need you to become minister. And that's not really a thing you say no to when it's such a big responsibility and, yeah. you know, things will depend on you. So it sounds like Umerov creates an entirely new team around himself. There are signs that there is a rift between the uh, presidential administration and uh, the top command. It's been rumored that uh, the commander of the Southern Grouping of Forces, uh, Alexander Tarnaski, uh, the same grouping that's uh, in charge of the counteroffensive, he might be fired. Hi everyone, and welcome to This Week in Ukraine, a show where the newsroom of the Kyiv Independent explains Ukraine's biggest events in just under 30 minutes. I'm your host, Anastasia Lapatina. Today, I'm joined by my colleague Igor Klosov to discuss a wave of personnel replacements at Ukraine's Ministry of Defense and the military, and what this big overhaul reveals about the Ukrainian government and the war. Igor, welcome back. Good to see you. Before we go on, I'll remind you guys to please subscribe to The Kim Independent wherever you're listening to this show, whether that's on YouTube or on audio platforms. Leave reviews, comments, likes. It takes just a second for you, but it goes a really long way for us because it helps platforms promote our show and more people can listen to the podcast and stay informed about the news in Ukraine. So, Igor, in the last several months, there have been a lot of kind of sudden staff changes, both at the defense ministry and within the Ukrainian military. And both of these institutions have been kind of under fire in the last year, you know, scandal after scandal about corruption, about inefficiency. And so all of these replacements of commanders, both, you know, at the front line and in the rear, at least publicly look like the government's genuine effort to like clear up and modernize and bring the defense sector up to necessary standards. So take us at the beginning of this government's effort. Where did it really start? Well... Originally, that's what Alexei Reznikov was brought aboard for as defense minister, because I remember reading at the time that this is important because uh, he's a civilian. And according to international standards and best practices, you don't really want to have some Soviet era careerist from the military heading the defense ministry. That's just, you know, heads for terrible results. Mm-hmm. So Reznikov was like this guy, oh, he's a civilian, he's like going to run a more modern ministry. And um, his tenure has not all been, I mean, in spite of the scandal, it's not all been bad based on the people I've talked to. I mean, it started off okay. But you're right that during the full-scale invasion, when at the time when Ukraine can't afford these kinds of shenanigans, these corruption scandals came out. One was they were procuring food at highly inflated prices. Uh, right, started that's the, off with yeah. the infamous egg scandal that yeah, everyone knows about. Yeah, like the the eggs were sort of the uh, the introduction, and then it's like, oh, it's actually a lot more food than that, and just the, the, mm-hmm. the shitty uh, relationships with contractors. And then there was another scandal after that when Ukraine was uh, buying jackets from Turkey, and it turns out they were uh, completely not to spec; they were different from what was needed. And it was like a very shady kind of Turkish entity that was ended up linked to a Ukrainian official. Mm -hmm. And yeah, during the full-scale invasion, when you're trying to get people to give you aid, military or otherwise, uh, this is this is death. This is this is very bad. So uh, at at some point, it it got to a point where Reznikov had to go. I think the the reason they kept him on for so long, in spite of the scandals, was his very 
decent relationships by then with the allies. They understood him. They spoke, you know, he, he knew how to talk to them. They, they liked him, you know, before all this stuff. So he was a sort of considered a net asset to Ukraine. But at some point, it just got where, you know, he and his team had to be fired. Finally, Reznikov and his team were replaced in September. And the, the man who came to replace him as minister, Rustem Amerov, previously was working at the state property fund for almost exactly one year. And Amirov wasn't really well known at all. Like, I think a lot of the reactions I've seen in, in the public sphere when uh, Reznikov was replaced with him was like, who really is this guy? What, what has he done? You know, why, why is he taking this post? Yeah. Um, I actually read that this was an 11th hour decision. Grinska Pravda, I believe, wrote that um, they couldn't figure out who they were going to appoint. And at some point, like towards the end, Umerov got a call from Zelensky. He's like, hey, you know, I need you to become minister. And that's not really a thing you say no to when it's such a big responsibility and, yeah. you know, things will depend on you. Um, I guess the good thing is like he's not well known for any corruption scandals. Exactly. Uh, so he's, at least we got that. Yeah, he's not. He's, he, he has a pretty, uh, I wouldn't say blank. He's got a, there's a lot of open space on his reputation, but mm -hmm. he, there's no black marks there either. He, he's, he comes from, his roots are the opposition. He was from the Holos Party. He ran the state property fund for almost exactly a year, and it was, he was decent at it. He didn't have time to accomplish any major things. He was working on creating the Sovereign Wealth Fund for Ukraine, which if he saw that through, that would have been a major accomplishment and majorly bolstered his credentials, um, but he didn't have the time. What I, what I heard from people who are familiar with the fund's work, he was a decent manager, uh, but he was sort of disorganized. His stuff wasn't very well planned. And his communication team or communication capacities weren't the best. So from the ethical, from the scandal-free point of view, he seems pretty clean. But in terms of actual strength of management, there is a question mark over that for me, at least. He's also Crimean Tatar, which is pretty significant, at least for the Crimean Tatar community in Ukraine, because, he, you know, this definitely has increased their visibility. Crimean Tatars are, of course, indigenous to Crimean Peninsula, which has been occupied since 2014. Yeah, because there aren't that many... Crimean Tatars at the high levels of government, and this guy is especially well-known among Tatars because he funded a bunch of initiatives, charities, and stuff right. like that. But even though he was a relative unknown, he came in very, very confident, bold statements saying that he's going to carry through the reforms, he's going to fix these problems that have been plaguing the ministry. His wording was, you know, very, very bold as well. Corrupt officials are terrorists. We have to digitalize everything. And, and so on. He's set expectations very high. And so what actually happens after he's appointed? Well, what are the next steps? Well, two weeks after he's appointed, the cabinet of ministers fires all of Reznikov's deputies except uh, one person. The people getting fired, that includes Hanna Maliar, who was sort of infamous among journalists for being very difficult to work with and uh, having sort of overbearing reactions to reporting of certain information, even while she herself just slap stuff out there as if to, you know, be, be the source through which, through which the news flows. Yeah, she had a really bad reputation among yep. the Ukrainian media, that's true. Many of my friends and colleagues who are journalists have, anytime you say the word Malyar to them, it's just, oh my God, yeah, that's I have to true. deal with this person. 
Well, now they don't. And we, <laughs> we hope that's going to make life a little easier. Um, our life is hard enough. So basically by mid end of September, Reznikov and his whole close team are gone. So who comes in to replace all of these people? The running theme of the new team seems to be that these are younger, more progressive, more technically savvy people who are closer to civil society. For example, one of the new deputies used to be a top manager at Comeback Alive, one of the top charities that is uh, supporting the Ukrainian war effort. Right, uh, that's Natalia Kalmykova. Exactly. She's, she also studied in the U.S. and she has this reputation at serving at one of Ukraine's most trustworthy NGOs. Uh, another one, Katerina Chernohorinka, worked on reforms at the Ministry of Digital Transformation. Which is also a ministry that's, you know, quite trusted, I think, by Ukrainians. Exactly. It's, it's one of the better, better liked and better trusted ministries with considered to have the most innovative ideas, mm-hmm. appropriately enough. She was also the first driving force behind the Army of Drones program, which we talked about before on this program. Uh, which has created a drone production pipeline with Ukrainian designs that have been successfully used in the field. And now uh, drones are inflicting, I don't want to say most, but the majority of the casualties uh, on Russian armor and personnel out in the field. They also have someone from the National Agency on Corruption Prevention, which is Stanislav Haider. He used to be in charge of digital transformation there. And this is the agency that has the registry of corrupt officials, and it was created under his guidance. That seems like a really big deal. Nazaka is also another one of those. Nazaka, that is the National Agency on Corruption Prevention, uh, as it's known here in Ukraine, that's also one of those more trusted bodies within the government. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. So the, the, the pedigree is there. The, the reputations are there. They're obviously trying to send a message mm-hmm. that this is a younger, more trustworthy, more civil society related, more tech-savvy group that's going to bring better ideas and more integrity to the ministry. That's the message. So it sounds like Umerov creates an entirely new team around himself. And all of these people seem, you know, to fit the priorities outlined by Zelensky himself, right? Like he openly said that he wants the Ministry of Defense to be closer to the civil society, to be in more active communication with, you know, soldiers on the ground and kind of be more effective in that way. Yeah, on paper, these seem like exactly the right people for exactly the right reasons. But, you know, how it plays out remains to be seen because sometimes good intentions, you know, don't always translate into good results in Ukraine. That's true. As well as creating clear management procedures for decision making have it completely be understandable, eliminate some of the sort of the fogginess of, you know, who controls what, you know, at whose mm-hmm. behest. Clear transparency for the, for the defense ministry. That was one of the priorities as well. And obviously they're going to, they want to fix procurement because that's been the most embarrassing thing. So have there been any concrete steps taken by this new team or is it still too early to say? The defense ministry has been talking for a while about creating a transparent, efficient, and clean procurement body that would handle all procurements. But under the old team, nothing really happened. Um, one of the mayor's deputies under the new team announced that it would be created and it would be called the state rare operator. It would handle all military procurements. Uh, so the new agency is supposed to start working already on December 1st, and uh, its head is actually Arsenzhi Madilov. Another Crimean Tatar official. Exactly. Who, uh, before this, used to work at the medical procurements of Ukraine, buying 
uh, medical supplies and medication. That that was exactly his job for the health ministry. It's exactly the same thing. They were supposed to handle all procurements in a transparent way, get the best prices. And I've worked with them while investigating the health ministry. And I think this guy's legit. Their teams were their team was legit, and it was stonewalled by the health ministry as much as it could get away with. I think he is kind of similar to Amirov in that sense that well. They're both Crimean Tatars, but also Jumadilov is similarly quite young and also has a reputation of just being a good manager. Another one of the main priorities here is to make sure that uh, there's no overlapping responsibilities and chains of command. So previously, decisions over some things were split between, you know, different players in the defense sector, defense ministries, so armed forces of Ukraine, the president, different stakeholders. They all have power over defense sector policy and Often their responsibilities might double up or... Collide? Yeah. So this is more uh, based on what uh, someone who's worked with the defense ministry has told me. This is also an attempt to kind of bring more defense policy under the control of the, the ministry of defense. So maybe less in the hands of the military, more in the hands of the ministry. And also the defense ministry will be working very closely with international partners and making sure all their concerns are addressed. So it looks like the government and Zelensky's administration is trying as as much as it can to sort of shift responsibility and control over defense policy to the ministry away from the military. Okay, so that actually perfectly leads into my next question, which is that as all of this quote-unquote renewal of the defense ministry is happening, something similar seems to be happening at, at the military, right? At, at the armed forces of Ukraine. Uh, how much do we know about that? What has been happening there? Not that much, but there are signs that there is a rift between the presidential administration and the top command. General Valery Zaluzhny wrote an op-ed for The Economist, for the Economist right? where he basically said there won't be a big, beautiful breakthrough, that, you know, this is pretty much uh, stalled right now, the, the counteroffensives. And Zelensky had a, quite a negative reaction to it. He, in, in, in public, he called for unity, but there were multiple reports citing sources and such that uh, he was uh, very unhappy with that. and. Either they don't see it as a stalemate or they don't want allies to see it as a stalemate because people don't like giving weapons to a frozen conflict. You're right that there's a lot. We still don't know because it's the dealings of the military and of course they're being quite secretive. But it is also true that, yeah, in that same week, I think, as the article in The Economist came out, there was this very strange situation with Viktor Porenko, who used to be the commander of special forces in the armed forces of Ukraine under the command of Zaluzhny, and I've read that they were pretty close, that, you know, he was one of Zaluzhny's main deputies, had a really good run, a lot of successful operations, you know, people generally liked him, but, you know, he was dismissed. So what happened there? Some of the reporting I've seen in Ukrainian media suggested that this was about as close as Zelensky could get to firing Zaluzhny himself. Um, and... Orenko told the media that he found out about his firing from, you know, reading it in the news. So this seems to be, seems to have been a very abrupt decision that happened very shortly after this op-ed was published. Whether or not he was on some kind of thin ice before, we don't know. This is just the order of operations is what we know about. 
Which is, yeah, which is weird, like you said, because the special forces have been just some of the stars of this conflict, then they've had so many wins, so many uh, mm-hmm. successful operations under their belt. Umerov actually said that Harenka was being fired or rather, you know, replaced, not, not because of some particular scandal or because he's accused of something, but rather because his efforts are needed in a different direction. And then Zelensky later said that Kharenka will continue working for GUR, that is the defense intelligence. Of course, because he's a valuable, uh, he's a valuable asset and they don't want to let him go. But, um, you know, he's needed elsewhere is, to me as a journalist, always sounds like sort of an insincere excuse. Has anyone else in the military been sacked? The people that were fired, there seems to be an, an odd sort of uh, gradient there. We already talked about Orenko, who seems to be doing a good job and needed where he is. There was, in October, Territorial Com- Defense Commander was dismissed. We don't really know what that was about or what impact it's going to have. And then there is uh, Tityana Stashenka, uh, head of the military's medical service, and she needed to go. The, Why is that? The problems are, are litany. There's medical supply procurement problems, training issues. Really, really bad treatment protocols and, you know, rescue emergency protocols that led a lot of people to have complications that they didn't need to have. Um, And on top of that, we are actually, my colleague and I are working on an investigation into what happens to veterans once they get injured and have to go through the medical system. And uh, I don't think it's a spoiler to say that Something about it is fundamentally broken on almost every level, and the fact that this stuff has been allowed to happen is just, to me, an even bigger problem than all these corruption scandals that we previously mentioned. So getting rid of her is a good start, but they will need to go through the entire system to fix these problems. Yeah, I think it said a lot when uh, Umerov came out with a statement after Astashnika's firing. He said that, you know, anyone who's dealt with the military or who's ever been injured, they know exactly why she was fired. It's obvious. He said it's obvious to anyone who's been in the military why Stashenka was sacked. Um, And I think that's true. I think there is almost this unanimous understanding in Ukraine, unfortunately, just how bad things are in the medical field uh, with the treatment of soldiers. It's, it's a nightmare. I mean, the more I've talked to these guys and what they've gone through and just the, the, the more things they, they showed me to, you know, justifying what they said, I was, yeah, I mean, it is very widely known. Everyone kind of talks about it, uh, but I haven't seen a lot of uh, large scale coverage of it. And uh, even though there are efforts to reform the system from civil society and Volunteers. Yeah, and volunteers to pick up the slack. But uh, yeah, we're hopefully this uh, is uh, going to turn around this, this very, very troubled ship. All of the things that we've been discussing so far, they do seem like a big step in the right direction. And it's long overdue, especially in the Ministry of Defense. But I wonder still why now? Like, do you think these dismissals could be connected to the by now failed counteroffensive that we had? It does seem that way. Though we don't know for sure. There, it's been rumored that uh, the commander of the Southern Grouping of Forces, Sander Tarnaski, the same grouping that's in charge of the counteroffensive, he might be fired. And Serinayev, commander of the Joint Forces, might also be fired in a possibly related plan. Yeah, obviously the situation on the front line is bad, but there doesn't seem to be 
unanimity in the government and the military who is responsible for these problems. If it was somebody's decisions or just the pace of delivery of the weapons, this might play out in a way that results in people getting fired. What do you think this big kind of overhaul tells us about the state of governance in Ukraine? Uh, part of it is very encouraging. It's bringing governance in the defense sector closer to civil society and accountability and transparency and, and all that. Uh, but the other thing is, based on what people have told me that I talked to, this likely increases the administration's control over defense policy. Not, you know, it, it has a great deal of control over that already and maybe takes a little bit of power away from the military. And this is not necessarily a bad thing by any means if it can lead to better results. But there is a risk of um, political bodies um, getting in the way of a military a strategy for political goals or for messaging goals, even if some of those goals are to like convince the allies to give us weapons. And that's not always a good thing. We're now going to be moving to the community question of this episode. As always, I'll remind you guys to please go to com slash membership to support our efforts there. It's really easy. There is a one-time donation and also an opportunity to become a full-on member of our community on a monthly basis for as little as $5 a month. Uh, you get really cool perks, including our favorite perk, the ability to send us in questions before every single episode of the podcast. We try to incorporate as many of them as we can. So the community question we're going to be answering today is, it's a really good question. Why aren't people in jail for corruption? <laughs> the member is saying it's a talking point. People keep coming up to when, you know, there is not enough help for Ukraine in the West. And if this continues, aid will be significantly cut. So it should be the number one priority. What do we think about that? Yeah, that's true. You know, more people can stand to be in jail for corruption, but uh, we're, you know, we're moving. This is actually perfect timing because the head of the special communication service was just jailed this morning for uh, corrupt actions. Right. There, um, it's this guy who was charged with embezzlement and he's now facing investigation and charges and he has been put in jail. I would encourage our listeners to check out several of our other episodes. We'll link them down in the description. We've talked at length about corruption in Ukraine on this podcast. It's a super important topic. But I guess the takeaway is that Albeit slowly, we are moving well, in the right direction. We we are, but we, we shouldn't take it for granted that we're moving. I mean, every step, you know, requires. It, it's important at the end of this program to say that recently, the in light of the growing opposition to provide Ukraine aid and among conservative parts of the U.S. government, the U.S. is going to hold Ukraine to more strict standards about corruption, mitigation and re reforms if it hopes to continue receiving weapons. Well, Igor, thank you so much for coming. It was really interesting to listen to you. Thank you very much. Also this week, the Secretary of the National Security and Defense Council of Ukraine, Alexei Danilov, warned that after the presidential elections in Russia, which are set for March 2024, the Kremlin may begin full mobilization. Ukraine has unveiled its latest drone called Backfire, which is capable of flying up to 35 kilometers behind enemy lines while resisting Russia's electronic jamming, according to Digital Transformation Minister Mikhail Fedorov. And Russia has significantly increased the number of assaults and airstrikes on the southern front, according to General Alexander Taranovsky, 
Nevertheless, Ukrainian troops have prevented Russian gains, he said. You can find our show on YouTube and all audio platforms every Friday morning. If you like this episode, please subscribe to us and like our content wherever you're listening to this podcast. Follow us on social media, on X, Facebook, and Instagram. We'll be back next week. Thank you for listening. Thank you.